One of the axioms of, the, uh, of trial lawyers is that, that you never ask a question of the accused or a witness to which you don't already know the answer. You're supposed to do your work and you're supposed to know when you ask a question in court what the answer is going to be so that you can structure your arguments around that. And if you're a trial lawyer here today and I'm wrong, please don't hold it against me. This rule was most famously violated in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. The prosecution ordered O.J. Simpson to put on gloves that were found at the murder scene. And they had never been cleaned. They were blood encrusted and they had shrunk. And uh, try as he might, and I don't think he tried very hard, O.J. could not get his hands in the glove. You remember the defense attorney's line, if they don't fit, you must acquit. And indeed, acquittal it was. If they don't fit, you must acquit. Now, today as we pick up where we left off last week in Acts 4, the Jewish legal authorities are themselves going to violate that courtroom axiom because they're going to ask a question of Peter and I suspect they actually did know the answer, but they didn't expect it to go down the way it did. Last week we read in chapter 4, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Peter and John spent the night in the pokey, and then comes the next day and we read this. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, and you have to understand that all the people that we've just talked about are in a semicircle in, a, in the hall of hewn stone. And Peter and John are put in the midst of them, in the midst of the semicircle, so all the judges, all the people judging, can look at each other and see Peter and John. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired... By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in that next day, three groups of Jews gather to examine the events of the previous day, the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. The rulers 
also called the leaders in other versions, were the chief priests of the temple. The elders were comprised of civic leaders, uh, the, the main family heads of the people in Jerusalem. Just as in our um, Middle East today, much control was in the hands of the various tribes of Israel. Basically, the 12 tribes of Israel were separate states, just like those in the United States. The Greek word translated as elder means literally old men. Just to let you know, that's, that's exactly what it means. Interestingly, although in Jewish life, elder still means old men, when Christianity adopted the term, it meant a leader or shepherd of the church. Timothy, now we just read 1 Timothy, I did not look ahead to see what our passage was today, I'm about to quote from it again. Timothy was an elder, although a very young man. Indeed, Paul, as he's giving Timothy a charge to be a pastor, says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That's a Christian elder, no matter what age. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was, what, 17 when he became an elder of the church? There is no need to be an old man like me, but I digress. The elders seen here are the old men of Israel. The last group mentioned were the scribes, those who studied and interpreted the law. And they were largely Pharisees. So these three groups got together with, verse 6 says, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and, the high pri- and John and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And the first thing of note here is that Annas was not the high priest of Israel at this time. So, was Luke wrong when he wrote that? Well, no, there was a little bait and switch. The high priests were appointed by the Roman governors at that time. They would choose who was going to be high priest. Annas was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, a period of 85 to 15, but it's a period of nine years and was removed by the Roman council. But Annas engineered it such that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, followed him next. Then five of his sons followed as high priest, and then a grandson followed after that. So Annas, though he was not technically the high priest, and John MacArthur has in his, that it's sort of like you call him the high priest because it's like we still call a president who's not uh, in office, we talk about President Carter or President Clinton. I don't think it was that way at all. The actual leader of the Jews at this time was Annas. 
He was the real power in Jerusalem. Uh, in, in John 18, 12, after arresting Jesus, the Roman soldiers, it says, led him to Annas. Led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So Jesus is first taken to Annas for the approval of the arrest, I'm assuming, and then taken to the high priest. So the real high priest was Annas. We don't know who Jonathan and Alexander are, unless, I mean John and Alexander, unless the John mentioned is actually Jonathan, who was a son of Annas and who would then succeed Caiaphas. So it may be him. We're not at all certain who Alexander is, but he was well known at the time. So back to Acts 4. So with this assembly gathered, they sent for Peter and John. Verse 7 says, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Now Homer Kent, who wrote the book uh, Jerusalem to Rome, points out that the Mosaic law specified that whenever someone performed a miracle and used it as a basis for teaching, he was to be examined. And if the teaching were used to lead men away from the God of their fathers, the nation was responsible to stone him. And that can be found in Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. On the other hand, if his message was doctrinally sound, the miracle worker was to be accepted as coming with a message from God to be accepted as a prophet, basically. In Luke 21 through 8, the same group did, the same, did this exact same thing to Jesus. And it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, same group, chief priests, scribes, elders, came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. And it's really bad when Jesus says that to you. When Jesus says, I'm going to ask you a question. You've got God turning the tables on you, and it's, it never works out well for anybody in the Bible. When Jesus says, let me ask you a question. He says, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And it says they discussed it with each other. Well, they turned away from Jesus, and, and there's a lot of mumbling going on, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, just another time. You'd think that they'd have learned their lesson because that didn't take place very long before. Uh, it probably took place in the previous three months that Jesus turned the table on them. But no, just like the uh, O.J. Simpson prosecution, uh, they got an unexpected response. This question was designed to intimidate Peter because they already knew that they were preaching in Jesus' name and healing in Jesus' name. They knew that. But what they were doing was calling Peter and John before them and saying, daring them to use the name Jesus, knowing that just three weeks before they had had Jesus put to death. They were trying to get the 
apostles to back off. In fact, if they were trying to lead men away from God, the penalty was death by stoning. Verse 8 says, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... In Luke 21, 12 through 15, Jesus told his disciples that they would be arrested. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So they're told beforehand, you're going to be arrested. Don't think about what you're going to say. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit would give them the words. And Jesus was true to his word from the testimony of the lives of the apostles, along with the Christians martyred by the millions They were delivered up to synagogues and prisons, to kings and governors, and even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, as he said. And it starts here in Acts with Peter, who does take this moment to bear witness to his Savior. So he had said, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means, and by what means this man has been healed, and uh, I finally got to my title from last week, so uh, for those who weren't here last week, I thought I was preaching from 1 through 13, and I made it to 4, so Peter says this a little ironically, a good deed done to a crippled man. Daryl Bach in his commentary says that in the ancient world, an act of beneficial service was normally rewarded and well-received, instead of being made the subject of a judicial inquiry. So, just exactly why are the apostles here for doing this good deed to a man? And it's at this point that Peter flips the script on on his accusers. All through their arrest and incarceration, the apostles have been polite and deferential. They have not caused a scene, they didn't resist, But they had also not been intimidated. And now instead of being defensive, Peter goes on the offense. Not only that, but he's about to preach to the leaders of Israel. A gospel message. So Peter says, if we're being examined for a good deed we've done, verse 6 says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, remember who Peter is preaching at. These are the very people that just a few short weeks previous had tried Jesus in the same way. 
They were rid of the troublemaker from Nazareth and had seen his followers flee in terror. These rulers and elders were certain and certainly hoping that they were done with this problem. And what's this? They're healing in Jesus' name. What's more, these scruffy Galileans are accusing them of murdering God's chosen one, who God then validated by raising from the dead. And you know that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, know that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is not a secret to any of them. They had conspired against and killed the Son of God, forgetting that God had the final say in the matter. The investigation on whether Peter and John were leading the nation away from God had taken an unexpected turn, for the leaders of Israel stood accused of being the enemy of God themselves. And the resurrection of Jesus was the proof that indeed they were. In verse 11... Peter appeals to the Psalms to to build his case that the apostles are not teaching error. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This reference to Psalm 118, one of the earliest messianic passages in the Old Old Testament, verses 19 through 24 say, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus himself quoted Verse 22 in his parable about the wicked tenants in Luke 20. And it's interesting. Well, mostly when Jesus taught in parables, the people didn't understand them. This is the one time the people knew exactly what it meant. In Luke 20, verse 9, and he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went, to another, went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard because this is how you worked it. If you had land, you hired people who worked it and you got a percentage of the fruits, grain, whatever it was. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, and the people, his audience said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone? 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's the one parable that they understand. God is going to judge Israel and completely cut them off for rejecting God's beloved son. It's pretty clear in there. You can see by the reaction, verse 16, he will come and destroy the vineyard and give it to others. And when they, his audience heard this, they said, surely not. The stone the builders, which was the rulers of Israel, charged with building the nation, the stone the rulers rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter concludes his defense, or rather his offense against his accusers, by preaching salvation to the murderers of Jesus. Verse 12, and there is no salvation in no and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now this is not what the rulers of Israel were expecting. They thought they could frighten the disciples in silence and chase them away. Instead, to their very faces, they are accused of killing Jesus and being the enemy of God. Furthermore, they are told that salvation, rightness before God, comes only in the name of the man they killed. This day did not go how they thought it would. So, how did they respond to this gospel message? Well, that, that's for next week, actually. We're not going to get there this week. But my question for this week is, why did Peter give an altar call, such as it was, to the scribes, Pharisees, rulers, elders, and the Sanhedrin at all. They had killed the Son of God. Didn't they commit the unpardonable sin? I mean, if that's not the unpardonable sin, what is? Well, killing Jesus was not the unpardonable sin. If they had listened to him that day and responded, they would have been saved. And I'm not saying that some of them did not. It's not reported. Jesus came to give his life for the many. So what is the unpardonable sin? You know, I've heard it said that attributing Jesus' works to Satan is that sin, or vice versa, that Satan was working through Jesus. And this answer is partly right, because we ought to see what Jesus says about that situation. In Mark 3, 22 through 32, Jesus addresses this very thing. And, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And it's interesting, Beelzebul is Baal. But the Jews changed it to Beelzebub, which means the Lord of the Flies. Instead of the Lord Baal, they changed it to the Lord of the Flies. And I like that very much. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies, blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an inter- eternal sin. For they said, had said, he has an unclean spirit. In Jesus' day, the unpardonable sin is accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed because this was blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying that Jesus was performing miracles through Beelzebub. The Jewish leaders knew irrefutably that this was a lie. They had seen, they had come purposely to see the miracles of Jesus, to see him perform these things. They knew what he was doing. Yet to his face on this earth, they accused him of working through and for Beelzebul, the god of filth, which is another one of the names, the god of dung, the lord of the flies. In other words, working for Satan. Jesus calls this the unpardonable sin. Now, we cannot actually commit that sin today because Jesus is not here on the earth for us to say to his face that he's doing it through Jesus. So what is the unpardonable sin for us today? It is related. Jesus said, No one comes to the Father but by me. The unpardonable sin today and you've heard me say this before, is failing to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You cannot be saved. You cannot be pardoned if you do not call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And it's not that, well, let me say this right. It is a terrible thing. Because you cannot be saved. You cannot be pardoned unless you call on the name of the Lord There is no pardon if you reject Christ. He alone is the mediator between man and God. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy 1, 12-16. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, I've said it before, that if you worry about your salvation, you're probably saved because nobody who's not saved cares a whit about their salvation. They do not care if they are not working out their salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't cross their mind. The examples of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin of Israel, who knew exactly who Jesus was, 
the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the suffering servant, a miracle worker, and for their own satanic purposes, killed him anyway. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will direct our paths that we have truly called on your name to be saved. For we know that if we have done that, you are faithful to save us, that you will forgive our sins, that you will hold us to you, even through the bad times, that you will preserve us till death. Lord, that's a promise that we can live our lives by without fear, just as Peter did today in standing up to his accusers and calling on them to repent and call on the name of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.